I'm not here now, but um, mm -hmm. I was here from the beginning when Matt Emanuel started and even before that. Um, and I'm so happy to be back. Um, I was here last year and I was sent off in um, end of July of last year, I wanna say, because in August I had planned to move up to Oregon uh, where my, my husband now, um, he's from, and we got married in August. So it's, a bit of, it's gonna be, not tomorrow, but next Monday, officially six months of marriage. So I'm really excited about that. Um, uh, just a bit about uh, about us. I'm gonna say us because, like I uh, Mickey mentioned, um, I had incorporated my husband's perspective because he couldn't be here today. Um, he's uh, one of the pastors at our church in Oregon. We're, we're at a church in Newburgh. Um, and he's focusing on discipleship and spiritual formation, which I think is really cool. Um, so he's teaching a class today, and he wishes he could be here. I wish he was here, because he's pretty funny. Um, <laughs> uh, so that's a bit about him. Um, currently, I'm working full-time doing counseling. Um, I'm not fully licensed, but it's gonna be a while. Um, but that's what I'm doing um, at a private practice south of Portland. Um, and I'm really excited to share, kind of from Mike's uh, perspective, So today, um, when we had mentioned we were going to be in town, um, Megan and Krista, they were hoping since it's Valentine's Day tomorrow, um, we'd be able to share about emotionally healthy relationships. Um, so that's going to be kind of the topic I will address. I will say, um, when I was preparing, I found it really difficult because it's such a huge topic. Like I imagined it and I'm like, I want to share this, I want to share that. Um, and then I realized, okay, this is probably like worth like a whole workshop. Okay. So, I, in that place, I needed to really take a step back and ask what is actually something really important about emotionally healthy relationships. So one of the biggest pieces, and in my opinion, the most important piece to emotionally healthy relationships that I'm going to speak about today is perspective. Mm -hmm. So in my field, so just so you know, I work more comfortably one-on-one, -on -one, right? And that's because when I sit with someone, I can look into uh, what their context in which they come from, right? And let's see what's their perspective. And a lot of the work that I do is actually pointing out what their perspective is and seeing if we can widen it. Okay, so things like um, tunnel vision, which I'm going to talk about today, um, reframing what it needs to grow, what's healing, um, redefining a narrative from maybe life happens to me to I have a choice of what my life can look like. Um, so it's gonna be a little different because I am speaking to a group. I'm probably gonna speak a little more generally, hence why taking even a step back of what it means, what an emotionally healthy relationship looks like. So perspective. Okay. And um, I do wanna be clear because uh, when I'm talking about within the context of relationships, this is not isolated to romantic were you born out of a family? If you are here, you came out of your mom, and <laughs> therefore you out of a family of some sort. And family means very different. Could be blood, could be friendships, right? Um, so do you have friends? Do you have coworkers or acquaintances that even sometimes may annoy you? Right? Do you call yourself a believer of God? Right? All of these are relationships. So what I'm gonna share is relevant to all of Hopefully you have some of those in mind as, as I talk today. Right. I'm going to start with an exercise. Okay. All right. Oh, that is pretty dense. This is going to be 
So this is a picture of something. It's incredibly zoomed in, so that's why it looks like this, and it's bright, so it's even probably a little bit less to see. All right, I would have you guess what it is. All right, any guesses? Watermelon. Strawberry. Strawberry. Watermelon. Watermelon. Ladybug. So unsure. I wonder why. <laughs> All right. Let me get, let me help you out there. Okay, we're gonna go to the next slide. We're gonna zoom out a bit. Is that helpful? Any strawberry? Flower. Flower. Strawberry. Jam. Did you say jam? Is that a pie? Oh, a pie. Oh. Huh. You guys are a little louder now. I'm hearing a little bit more confident. All right. Another one. How about now? Then 
David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Right. So just to give some context a little bit before and then hear what happens after too. Um, yeah. Uh, so a couple of chapters before in verse 16, David's anointed king. Right. Saul was the current anointed king at the time, but David had received that from Samuel. <coughs> after that, he becomes the official musician, very artistic. He also kills Goliath establishes, he's established as a warrior, right? And through all this, we, we get to see Saul gets really, really jealous of David, right? And so in this chapter, David seeks her. Saul seeks out Davis to the wilderness of Engedi with 3,000 men. I, I do want to just point this out because this is cool. Um, my husband, he spent some time in Israel studying, so I thought his education could be shared here. These are some pictures of the wilderness in Engedi. Can you imagine 3,000 men walking around? It's, it's hot. Right? So it's really dry, but then, he, just to point out what he pointed out to me, Josh said that that little waterfall there, you see what difference water can make in a dry area. Right? And then there's also a cave. That's actually him standing there. So imagine Saul's in this cave. All right? David's, actually, David and his men are in the innermost parts of the cave. Saul goes into a cave to relieve himself, which is most likely he went into poop. <laughs> very, very vulnerable position. <laughs> okay. Um, and so David's men says to when they see him, hey, this is what the Lord was saying, right? He's giving you your enemy into your hand, and you should do what seems good to you. And David, in that moment, cuts off a corner of the rope, right? But then his heart struck him, right? So he had a heart check there. And points out, this is the Lord's anointing. God, the Lord forbid I should do anything right now. Okay. Saul leaves the cave after this passage. Saul leaves the cave. David goes after him and calls out to him, my Lord the King. Right? Very important there. Bows with his face to the earth, which he puts himself in a vulnerable position, considering Saul has been trying to kill him. Right? You don't want to bow before the guy is trying to kill you, but he does. Um, and tells him pretty much, I could have killed you, but I didn't. <laughs> right. I just cut the corner of your robe. Right? May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me. So if, if I die by your hand, may he avenge me. But my hand shall not be against you. I'm not going to harm you. And eventually Saul says, is this your voice, my son David? He wept. He recognized that David spared his life. Saul blesses him and asks him to swear not to kill off his offspring. Right. So that's kind of the context of what's happening here. All right. So I think this passage, um, usually this passage is used to talk about God's timing, right, for what he has planned for your life, right? Don't rush into it, right, just like David did. He didn't take it into his own hand. Um, but what stood out to me was David's choice in that matter, how he chose to view Saul as God's anointed at that time. We see with Saul here, Saul was jealous. He felt threatened. 
and he was actively pursuing David to kill him, right? If I had that coming at me, right, and someone's out to kill me, I think it's okay to be alarmed, right? I think it's okay if, if something were to happen that I wanna fight back, right? Um, I, I wanna disarm my opponent in self-defense, right? I think those you could reason that's probably justifiable, right? And so in that moment, David could have taken Saul's life, right? He knew previously by God, God had told him, you're, you're, you're going to be anointed as king, right? So that could have been the moment where it's like, God, you're giving me the green light. You're giving me the green light to do something, right? And if he did kill Saul in that moment, that would have stopped the fighting. Mm -hmm. I think that's a pretty good reason, mm -hmm. right? Um, but as we see, David's heart struck him. Right? He had a heart struck him. And once that happened, he pivoted his perspective from Saul the enemy to Saul the Lord's anointed. Right? How hard was that in that moment? Okay. Right? And so his behavior reflected this pivot. Okay? And he did it a different way by honoring what God had planned for the both of them. Right? Not just for him, but for the both of them. Right? And you Saul is the current king, his time would eventually come at the so I love this example because David keeps a higher perspective, God's perspective, and by honoring um, honoring what God saw in Saul. Right? And he used that as his compass, his lens to guide his behavior. Right? So that being the example, right? how do we keep a higher perspective when we see someone, possibly as an enemy? right? How, and maybe you're not out to kill people. I really hope not. Okay? <laughs> Although sometimes, maybe if you're in an argument, you're really tempted to. <laughs> okay. right. So how do we choose to see another person who thinks, feels, acts differently from us, and how do we choose to respond? Right. I think that's really hard these days, especially with cancel culture. Right. And I, I, I want to point out that there is there, accountability is really important. Well, what's the line between keeping someone accountable and completely cutting missing something here. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. So kind of going back to my main points, just some things I want to elaborate on, right? Those three questions that I point out. What do I see? What do they see? What's the bigger picture? Right. So just to address these individually. First question, what do I see? Right? I want you to ask yourself, in those tough moments, what do you see in yourself? Right? Maybe you're talking to your parents and I don't know about you, I'm going to be the person to say, I have a hard time talking to my parents, especially being an adult when my parents sees me as a kid, <laughs> right? And I always have to kind of check myself and say, okay, how do I not be frustrated? How do I make you make myself? Okay. Right. What do you see in yourself in those tough moments? Right. What are you aware of within yourself? Right. Just like David did, he, he had a heart check, right? Where's your heart at? Um, one thing I do want to point out, this is something I share with all my clients. Uh, it's good to communicate emotions, right? When you're checking with your heart, your heart, your feelings, your emotions, they're good things to point out, right? And that's because emotions describe your inner experience in the moment. It's not the whole picture, right? But it is a valuable part of a picture of what's, what needs to be recognized, okay? So they describe your personal inner experience which is why one event can happen, and yet 
two people can feel very different about right. what happened. All right. But where sometimes we can get kind of a little messed up there is, I don't know about you, how often in those moments do we feel like uh, we need the other person to feel the exact same way as us? That's not what emotions are about. They're your personal emotions. Okay. Right. So check. What's yours? What's your emotions in those times? Right. Maybe you have a memory in mind that that might have been challenged. Something to think about. Right. The other thing is, what do I see? What do I see in the other person? Right. This example with David. Right. Do I see an enemy in front of me, or do I see in his face? Do I see the Lord's anointed? Okay. Um. When I took my couples counseling class um, in grad school. Um, he shared, a, uh, one of my professors, really great guy, really straightforward, um, he shared a really important thought. He said, one of the biggest ways you can destroy a relationship is by always making the other person wrong. Right. You can destroy a relationship by always making the other person wrong. Right. Imagine what that would be like if that was a consistent thing, trying to make another I think that's a very opposite picture of what our covenant relationship is supposed to look like. Right? And our relationships that we have here need to reflect like that. Okay. Alright, so I, I I will be honest, a lot of what I'm sharing are not actually like statements, they're questions. I think I feel like I'm a professional question asker. <laughs> <laughs> so just a heads up, there's gonna be a lot of questions, mostly for you to reflect on. Alright. Second thing, uh, second point. What does the other person see? What do they see? Right. Um, in this example of David, I really wonder what David was thinking here. Right. They don't really say David thought this, um, but what he knew what he could look like to Saul. He looks like a threat. That's how he has been uh, appearing as to him. Right. Um, however, we see with David's response to Saul um, in his behavior, how he's uh, wanted to present. In verse 8, afterwards David also arose, went out of the cave, called after Saul, my lord the king, so he calls out to him in a proper way. Right? And then Saul looked behind and he bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. Right? So that's a very vulnerable position. Right? So my question is, in this case, what is the other person seeing in you? Right? Step into the other person's shoes just for a moment. Um, if it's hard, I would say when we're like flooded with emotions, right? All we're really focused on is what our experience is, what's going on with me. You are really pissing me off right now, you know, things like that. Right? But that's also a crucial time where you have to pause. Right? What is the other person seeing me in me right now? And is what I'm is what I'm conveying what I want to convey? You know. So for example, one of the things uh, when I let's say. I'm I get flooded, I'm in an argument, or I'm having a hard time communicating, right? Um, my natural tendency is to just stop talking and to be silent, right? Um, however, in that moment, I know that I don't want to stop talking. I want to keep communicating, it's just hard. Right? So in my mind, I have to step into the other person's shoes and say, well, if, you know, if I'm being silent right now, is that, conveying that I want to keep communicating. Probably not. So I should probably say something about what's going on. Right. So step into the other person's shoes just for a moment. And if it's hard, 
for you to step into the other person's shoes? Ask. <laughs> but be very careful. When you ask, be prepared to listen. Um, and I, I do have to ask in those moments, are you listening only to prepare a reply in your head? Right? To prepare to share your experience in response. Right? Most likely, that answer might be yes if you think my response has a lot of eyes and me's. Then I don't know if you're really preparing to listen to the other person. Is your stance defensive or is it curious? That's something I really point out with a lot of my clients. Changing it from a stance of judgment, a lot of times to ourselves, and then switching it to just curiosity. And that's because curiosity reduces assumptions of what you make in those moments. So be curious. Um, something, I guess, really practical. This is something that my husband Josh does, and he wanted to point this out. Uh, if, if you eventually meet him, he's a really great guy, really friendly, um, but he's a verbal processor. He loves to share. Um, I'm very opposite. I will listen and not say a word for a really long time. <laughs> And so in those moments where we try to communicate and he wants to listen, but it's hard for him because his mind's going like a thousand miles an hour, what he does practically is he actually, when he thinks about something that um, he wants to eventually share, but he knows it's not the right time, he crosses his fingers. And then just, like he's not like pointing it out, he's just keeping it to the <laughs> side. As for him, a physical reminder that, oh, I had something that came up, but I'm gonna still give you the space. I wanna listen to you and not interrupt. He does that, and then eventually he'll, he'll look at it and he'll say, oh yeah, I wanted to share this, and he'll share. So that's, that's his, his, uh, his tip. All right. um, lastly, what is the bigger picture? Okay. Right. So spoiler alert, I'm going to talk about what happens after um, what we shared in, in David uh, and Saul. Right. So two chapters later, right? So this is this whole experience in chapter 24. Uh, David spares Saul's life, so uh, they talk it out, grieve, thanks for not killing me, all right, uh, please don't hurt my offspring, all that stuff, right? Two chapters later, do you know what Saul does? He tries to kill him again, <laughs> right? So the second time here where he, he, he's coming after David, right? But David does the exact same thing. So in 26.9, David tells um, Abishai, which is uh, someone that uh, was uh, hanging out with him, says, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Right? So he says this again. He still, he still points out Saul is the Lord's anointed. Who can harm him? No, do not destroy him. Don't hurt him. So he's all the other people. I would feel like in this situation, if I was David, and I'm not David, so my response might be a little different. You know, kind of that phrase, fool me once, shame on, shame on you, fool me twice, okay? <laughs> I think I could do something here. Um, but David, David does not fool. And do you know what happens? Saul accepts responsibility. Saul says in verse 21, I have sinned, return my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Wow. And this, if you read on, the ending fighting, 
the ending fight, I will switch words, this happens a lot. The fighting ended between them after that point. They were still fighting other people, right? But between them, they did not fight anymore. Um, and when Saul died, David had no regrets. So David kept a bigger picture in mind, and he's held to that bigger picture. Right? So what is the pic bigger picture to keep in mind? What do you continue to hold on to, even when in the moment, it's incredibly challenging to see, see someone not as an enemy out to get you? So an illustration that I love about bigger pictures and coming together, um, any of you guys seen the movie Encanto? Yes. Absolutely, He's such a good character. I love Bruno. <laughs> All right, I, I love this movie. It's a beautiful example of generational differences and struggles. If I won't spoil it. I really, really want to, but I am not going to, just in case someone has not seen it. Hopefully, after I talk about this, you're curious enough to see it. Um, but this is uh, what I'm okay. I will speak very generally here. What I love about this illustration that struck me, and when I struck, I say struck me, I would clarify I was more like bawling at this point. It was a conversation between the main character, uh, Maribel, and her grandmother. Um, and it was their conversation recognizing what their personal perspective was and what they were fixed on, mm. right? And then taking a point to recognizing, okay, what's the other person's perspective? Right? Beautiful, beautiful. They, they saw a bigger thing, and they realized they wanted the same thing, right? They just saw different parts of it that needed to be addressed, right? So I love that. If, if you rewatch it, I've watched it about five times already. Wow. Um, it's a good movie. <laughs> All right, but all that to say, uh, that's kind of an illustration I wanted to point out, right? Um, I also just completely side tangent. I don't know if anyone else was equally as frustrated at the movie, though, because, of course, the Disney movie, You'll have effective communication <laughs> at the end of the movie with cultural and generational barriers. Um, and still, in the magic family, they end up resolving. And everything that I've hoped for in my family, they did in an hour and a half movie. <laughs> okay. So, of course, but it's Disney. They can do that. So, give them a name. <laughs> Alright, so question for you. What gets you from tunnel vision to widescreen? That's a really good question. When you're angry, tunnel vision is it's, it's really hard to get out of. How do you get out of that into a widescreen bigger picture? Um, I, I personally, in, in terms of my work, I keep a family systems perspective, meaning that I, it's not that I don't work with families, I work with individuals and see from their context, their perspective, what are the different systems involved. Um, and so when I work with couples, um, I emphasize a huge point from the beginning, and I re-emphasize it constantly. Um, I tell them, the person is not the problem. The problem is the problem. Mm -hmm. Once you make a person a problem, you give up any, and you can't go anywhere because you give up any type of responsibility that you really have in the part, mm. right? But the problem is the problem, and you're obviously involved, right? So practically, what does this look like to keep a bigger perspective? All right, if you have someone in mind, I just want you to think about mentally, and maybe even physically, 
Where are you seated? Where are you seated in your conversations with them? Let's say you're having a conference with someone. Are you seated across from them, um, ready to present your side, or are you seated next to them, knowing that you're going to talk about it, but figure it out together? Another visual, um, something that I've done with clients. Um, there's this thing called family sculpting. Um, if, if I had a family in the room, I would actually have them do this, but I work with a lot of individuals. Um, and so what I do is, with an individual, I, I, I pull out uh, all these different little figurines. I work with kids, so I have little stuffed animals and little dolls and stuff. Um, but I pull this, and I do this with adults, okay? Um, but I pull them out and I ask uh, the individual, can you arrange these uh, little figurines. Um, first, assign each figurine um, a person in your family. Right? And then arrange each figurine to represent what will, what it was like to be, uh, if you guys were all in a room, what would your presence, demeanor, um, stance look like if you were all in a room together? Just a representation. Um, so I'd see um, things like they'd have two people right in front of each other looking at each other, but nothing else. And sometimes that represented a very combative relationship that they observed. Right? Um, other times they may have another person in the corner faced away from everybody. Maybe they had a family member that was distant and uninvolved. Sometimes I've, I've seen individuals who are in the corner, but facing everybody as an observer, but uninvolved. Right? So just having that type of exercise really um, brings into like a bigger picture of just what are you observing? Right? But one thing that's really telling, and it happens very consistently, is afterwards I ask, okay, what would you do, how would you, arrange this, what would this look different um, if you arranged it in the way that you would hope? And from what I've seen so far, <laughs> it's always usually not two people looking at each other and no one else. Okay. Not, let me just throw myself out of this picture. Most people want to stay in connection and relationship, even though it's hard. Yeah. And they'll arrange all the members in a circle facing each other, right? And when I ask them, because these are like toys, they're not actual people, and then I ask, what are they doing? And they'll say, yeah, everyone's looking at each other, they see each person, and they acknowledge each other's presence. That's a beautiful, bigger picture, and sometimes it's hard, because the reality doesn't look like that. However, is that something we need to keep in mind? Because if we have that picture in our mind, not one of distance, but one of connection, yeah. right? Our posture will change, right? Even if the other person's doesn't, ours may be different, right? So just some things, some helpful tools I wanna share, right? First off, anytime you need help to see what's in front of you, what does God see? Right? Um, Psalm 139, 23, 24, um, it says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. 
and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Okay. Here, the psalmist is asking God, or more like crying out to God, hey God, show me what's in my heart. See what I'm thinking? Try me. Know my thoughts. I want you to know my thoughts. Show them to me. Right? And lead me in the way everlasting. That's a bigger picture statement. Right? What's the, the pathway to the everlasting? Right? That last verse is a stop sign. Stop in front of vision. Right? So in those moments when you need help seeing what's in front of you, ask God. Go to him in prayer. Right? And ask the Holy Spirit to intervene. The next tools, these are incredibly super practical. I love them. I swear by them. Right. Um, I got a picture for you. This is something that I use. It's an iceberg. Right. And so if you don't know anything about icebergs, you see a very, very small percentage of it above the surface. And most of it is below the surface, unobservable. Right. Titanic's demise, obviously. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I, I hope it's the boat's okay. All <laughs> um, So I like this visual because bigger picture. Like, was when we look at the tip of the iceberg, right? Uh, anger is up there, um, and that's because anger is one of those emotions which most likely you can point out to yourself, or someone else can point it out to you. Right? Um, but oftentimes, when we feel angry, we don't really see a lot of the other things, right? We don't see the harder emotions that are honestly sometimes not even visible, right? How do you show someone that you're vulnerable or you feel vulnerable in that moment, right? How do you show someone that maybe you feel guilty about what happened? How do you show someone that you're feeling insecure, right? That one's one that we probably don't want to show people. Yeah. And yet it's sometimes very, very present. All is to say, okay, if we're responding out of what's on the tip of the iceberg, you can only go so far. Right. For me, my, when I talk about uh, my iceberg and I see show that top, I'm completely shut down. That's all I'm showing. I'm freaking out. I'm flooded. And I don't really go anywhere. Right. Conversation kind of stops if I stay there. Right. However, if I, like I mentioned, what David did, do a heart check, what's beneath the surface? That's a little bit more vulnerable to share, yet so crucial to what I'm feeling in the moment. That's something that I need to speak out. Right? And it's hard, because in that moment, when you're feeling vulnerable, it feels like everything's on the line. What's the other person going to do? Right? And yet, how important it is to convey that to another person. Right? So again, what's the bigger picture? What's going on with you? What's below the surface? Right? And if you have a hard time, even identifying these feelings, I think language is incredibly empowering. Right? Having a language to describe your experience right, does so much, it goes so far. Yeah. Right? So I have a tool. I share this with almost everyone. So I am sharing it with you. You get to be part of that. So cool. <laughs> I, I literally have this tool. I have this on my refrigerator. That's how much I love it. Okay? It's a feelings wheel. Um, in the middle circle, I, and there's so many out there, let's say, just find one. I have one with cute faces, too, with, with like little happy faces, and a little tiny Mickey has a coffee, he loves it. I love it, too. I, I have flashcards, too. They're awesome. Um, <laughs> okay, but this is a little bit different. Um, 
So in the middle circle, sad, joyful, peaceful, powerful, mad, scared. Um, these are probably ones that, again, you could, if you felt that way, it's pretty easy to, to describe. Right? Those can be the, use, the words that may be used in childhood. I just feel really sad. I'm really mad right now. However, there's so many other words that we can use to describe our experience. Yeah. Right? And, and one thing that's interesting is uh, some of these can happen at the same time. Um, and uh, I put, sometimes I pull this out and I'm like, no, you're feeling overwhelmed. Overwhelmed isn't really a feeling. It tells me you're feeling a lot. And I pull this out and I ask someone to point it out. And they'll point out like six or seven different feelings. I'm like, oh, that's what you mean. <laughs> okay. So it's really helpful. And, and I use this personally. Um, what, let's say, like I mentioned, when I flooded, I shut down. I don't really know what to say. Josh will take this off the bridge, put it in front of me, and he'll say, what are you feeling right now? And I'll point out, and what he found was really helpful was, I would point out very opposite feelings, right? Uh, for example, at one point I felt really, I pointed out excited, I, I pointed out, um, what else, proud, and then I pointed out anxious and secure, scared, <laughs> miserable, all those kinds of things, it's like, oh. No wonder you're just sitting here not saying anything. <laughs> so I love this resource here, um, but just having another thing to share with you guys um, if you have trouble with knowing what to point out. Okay. Um, I'm going to end with a personal story. Okay. Um, so last year, I mentioned uh, July was when uh, words are escaping me. <laughs> I always say this was a really tough moment, so bear with me. Um, last year in July was when I moved up to Oregon, right before we got married. Um, and I, I'm sharing this because this was a really tough moment, but also one that created a deep, even deeper connection between Josh and I. Um, so it was the last week I was here in San Francisco before we were going to drive up, and we had been nonstop packing. He was helping me pack. So we were nonstop packing, um, except to do schoolwork because we were also both in grad school. Really stressful time, I don't recommend doing all that before getting married. <laughs> um, and so this was literally the night before driving up. Okay, the next morning we were gonna uh, take the van, drive up uh, 10 hours to Oregon. And so uh, we had been packing, we stopped and took a break. Okay. And so I was sitting on the couch and I look at all the boxes around, and uh, for the first time I noticed it felt really cold in that room. Um, it felt cold because there was a lot less stuff in it. Um, and, but it also hit me that I was just feeling so much in that moment um, because I was thinking about how my life would already start to look so different the very next day. And I'm leaving, this is my childhood home. So the very, really, I'm framing this really, really heavily because it was a very heavy moment for me. And so in that moment, I did, like I mentioned, what I normally do when I'm feeling all the feels. I am completely silent, and then a full-on flood of tears, right? And so the next thing um, Josh did was what any loving future husband would do in that moment. He got frustrated. <laughs> Damn. Don't worry, I'm not trying to roast him right now. 
Uh, he would agree with me that this was a really good film. I'll get there. <laughs> All right. So, but let me let me just paint what he, what he saw. In that moment, what he saw, he thought he thought he was pretty frustrated because he thought I was second guessing. Um, he we had been discussing where we wanted to live. Where we So when I started to cry and uh, really break down, um, he thought I was regretting it and I wasn't being honest about uh, what I was, what I wanted. Um, and so he was frustrated. He also really, was really frustrated because um, he was really excited for us and it looked like I wasn't in that moment. Right. So very different views right there. Um, and so what ended up happening in this moment when he got frustrated, it got really tense and he actually, he did say something very mean to me. And I'm not, I'm not roasting him, he, will, he would admit this, he would, if you asked him, he would agree. Okay. Right. So I had to decide in that moment because, oh my gosh, it was so challenging. Um, I was crying so hard from that conversation, but honestly more so about everything that, was, that, was, that I was feeling in that moment. Right. And the timing of that just really sucked because this was the night before we were going to drive up. Um, so I had to choose what to do in that moment. Do I fight back because he said something mean? Or do I take a really, really hard pause to see what he sees? And I would say I, I took that pause and it was really, really hard. I was hurt. But I, I had to hold to that bigger picture and I knew that this is my future husband. I know he loves me. And I would I, I had to say, okay, I know he loves me. Why is he frustrated right now? Why would he say something that hurts? And then I saw, wow, he must be struggling too, seeing me like this. It was hard for him to see me struggle, and he didn't want that. He wanted me to be excited and happy. And that's what I brought up in the moment. That's what I spoke into. I said, it must be really hard for you to see me cry like this, especially since there's so much going on. And I had to say, I really had to say I am excited even though I'm like crying my eyes out. You don't see that, right? That's really real. That was something I had to point out. You don't see it, but I do feel this way. It's just really hard. And do you know what he did in that next moment? I'm gonna tell you he wasn't frustrated. He didn't say a word. He teared up.
What does the other person see? What is the bigger picture that God is trying to show you to hold on to? 